Praise. You turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Pick up where we left off last week. So far, what we have seen in the Gospel of Mark is a Jesus that most people can stomach or even celebrate. Um, A Jesus that most people can get along with. A Jesus who's healing the sick. A Jesus who's raising the dead. He's touching the leper. Loving the ones that most people reject. He does amazing things like walk on water and calm storms. He teaches with authority. He even calls out and criticizes the religious hypocrites of the day. Most people so far are on board with this Jesus. But in this passage that we're looking at today, not only do we see this pivotal turning point in the Gospel of Mark, but we begin to see that part of Jesus that starts to thin out the crowd. When Jesus is giving us what we want, Yeah, we're in. When he begins to make demands on us, we start looking for other people we can follow. If you really get who Jesus is, you really get why he came, then you realize, A, there is no other way, and B, there is no better way. There's only the way of the cross and death which actually leads to life and joy. And it's all motivated by love. So see this today. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Father, we rejoice that we have your word. We need the word. We need the spirit of God to do this work in us that cannot be accomplished by man, that cannot be accomplished by sermon. It can only be accomplished through the word of God and the spirit of God. And so we we plead with you to come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, and do this work in us. We need it. I hope and pray we long for it. We desire it. So we submit to the authority of your word and the work of your spirit this morning. And we lovingly, rejoicingly expect you to do big and deep things in us today. 
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're at the halfway point of the Gospel of Mark, not just because we're at the end of chapter 8, but because this passage is truly a turning point in the Gospel. Prior to this story, what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark is this bold declaration about who Jesus is, that he is this king who has come in power, who has come with authority. He's doing things that nobody else has ever seen done on the face of the earth. He, he is a man, we know that for sure, but he's also got this divine power that he possesses that, that helps people to see that, that he's more than a man. He, in fact, is God in the flesh, as they will discover as we move forward. We've seen this king through the first eight chapters, and now we begin to see the servant. Jesus has mainly been around the Sea of Galilee during his ministry. He's taken some long trips into Gentile lands. But now, for the rest of the Gospel of Mark, he's headed down south toward Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross from this point forward. And we begin this turn with Jesus asking his disciples this great question. Now, the question he really wants to ask is the second question. Who do people say, who do you say that I am? But he begins with this first question, who do people say that I am, to kind of disarm them. Just kind of set them at ease. We have all this evidence, and so what is the verdict? What are people saying about me? Well, some say he's Elijah, the Old Testament prophet who spoke boldly and did many amazing miracles in the Old Testament. And he was always kind of this mystical figure to the Jewish people because he never physically died. He was carried into the heavens with the chariot of fire in 2 Kings 2. It was said that someone like the prophet Elijah in the end of Malachi would be the forerunner of Christ. We've already seen that person in John the Baptist. So maybe Jesus, the people are saying, is the real reincarnation of Elijah. Or some, like Herod, he thought Jesus was John the Baptist back from the dead. In fact, we've already seen this this language in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. King Herod heard of Jesus, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. That's what Herod thought. Jesus was just John the Baptist raised from the dead. And then they thought he might be a prophet of old, like one of the Old Testament prophets raised from the dead. Not, Not just a generic prophet, but literally maybe Zechariah or Habakkuk or Hosea, one of the Old Testament prophets raised. Passages like Deuteronomy 18, 18, where it says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So there was this expectation that this This might could happen, that God could raise up one of these Old Testament prophets and speak to his people, not knowing that that was speaking about Christ. But then, Jesus gets to the real question, who do you say that I am? You see, if he would have led with this question, his disciples might could have said, well, you know, Jesus, some people say this about you, some people say this about you. But Jesus gets that out of the way so that they are left not with, with what other people are saying, but with what they think. Will they go along with public opinion or have they come to a point in time where they've seen enough evidence where by the Spirit of God they understand and are beginning to see who He really is? What do they believe? And we know from the Gospel of Matthew that this confession of Peter, it wasn't that Peter's just smart enough. Like Peter knew things that nobody else knew because he's a genius. We know from Matthew 16, 17 where Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So it wasn't that Peter's a genius and figured it out. It wasn't that Peter had somebody tell him this secret. It's that the Spirit of God revealed it to Peter, which is the only way 
by the way, that we see Jesus and see Christ. You have to have the Spirit of God reveal to you who Jesus is. You don't figure it out because you're smart. You don't figure it out because somebody tells you. It's the Spirit of God that opens your eyes and helps you to see it. Just as in the, the previous story of the blind man being partially healed and seeing partially and then being fully healed and seeing fully, so also the eyes we have to see Jesus for who he is, even if we don't completely understand everything there is to understand about him, whatever sight we have about Jesus is a gift of God's grace. Like you didn't wake up understanding who Jesus is one day. The Spirit of God did that in you. We're dependent on that. So see Jesus for who he is, is a work of God. And Peter calls him the Christ. Literally, Messiah, the anointed one. Up until now, the only ones in the Gospel of Mark who have recognized Jesus for who he is have been Mark, the narrator, who's writing this a couple of decades after Jesus did all this. So he obviously knew who Jesus was. And demons. Up until now, that's the only ones who saw Jesus and knew who he really was. No human has confessed the reality of who who Jesus was. They've been amazed at his power, maybe asking him for his power in their life. But to really understand this Messiah, this Christ. But here they confess it, finally. And Jesus tells them to keep quiet. Again, part of Jesus' gospel ministry, not part of our ministry today. We're not called to keep quiet today. But at that time, you have what the theologians call the messianic secret. There were so many expectations in the Jewish culture about who the Messiah is and what the Messiah would come and do that Jesus knew if he went around letting his followers tell people he was the Messiah or himself claiming to be the Messiah, that there would be flocks of people coming to him with swords and weapons ready to go march on Rome because that's what they thought the Messiah was. That's who they thought the Messiah was, had come to do. In fact, uh, very close to this region where they were at, around the Sea of Galilee, there was a man by the name of Judas the Galilean who had sons who a few years later would take up swords and try and fulfill Messianic prophecies by attacking Roman soldiers and Roman armies. And they would be crushed by Rome in 66 AD when the temple was destroyed. So there was this fervor already in the culture to take up arms and get rid of Rome because our Messiah has come. Jesus didn't want to feed that. He didn't want to be the one that they wanted to follow for that. And you see some of this in John chapter 6 after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the people wanted to make him a king. They were ready for that. And so Peter confesses Jesus as Christ and Jesus says, keep this to yourself. Now we'll get more into the title Messiah in a second. But first see that a disciple of Jesus is one who has faith in Jesus that is personal. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're going to have a faith in Jesus that is personal. Now, when I say personal, I don't mean what a lot of people take that to mean today as private. We'll see that later on. It's got to be public faith. But personal as in you own it. It's your faith. You're not depending on the faith of your parents. You're not depending on the faith of your grandparents. You're not depending on the faith of your spouse. You're not depending on the faith of your pastors. You're not just a part of a church and all these other people believe. So I'm just kind of by osmosis getting what they've got. That's not enough. Like it has to be your faith. It has to be what you believe, what you confess. 
Like everybody else in the crossing church could walk away from Christ. And because it's your faith, you're still in. You can drop out. I'm still in. This is why when we uh, baptize, as we did last Sunday, we have the, the, the person being baptized share their story. It'd be weird if somebody got up and started telling the story of other people. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. You've got to have your own story. Your own story of how you saw one day that you're a sinner. You saw how beautiful Jesus was as a Savior. And through Jesus, you could be forgiven. And this is what your life has been like if you, as you follow Jesus. It's got to be your story. It's your faith. It's a, a personal faith. Every single person has to answer that question, who do you say Jesus is? Like every single person in this room will stand by yourself before God one day and be held accountable. And the answer you give now in this life to that question, who you say Jesus is, makes all the difference for eternity. And there's nobody in that instance that you can call on to help you. Well, my, my parents believe, my grandparents, no, no, no. What did you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? What do you believe about Jesus? It has to be your faith. Peter says he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. Now in the Old Testament, there were three people who were anointed. Prophet, prophets, priests, and kings. The Messiah, the anointed one, primarily was understood in the sense of a king. The Messiah was this anointed king who would come and fulfill all of God's purposes for the world. There are, there are key passages uh, throughout the Old Testament that, that reveal this. Psalm 2, the one that we read at the beginning of the service, is one of those passages. You know, the nations rise up, the people's plotting against the Lord, while God sits in heaven laughing at them. While they're plotting against God and His anointed one, Messiah, the Lord holds them in derision. Like, who, who do you think you are, kings of the earth? Your ability to survive, your ability to thrive is all dependent upon my grace and my allowing you to do that. Because one day your allegiance to the Son, my Son, will determine what happens to you for all of eternity. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 is another passage. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. See the messianic language that Jesus alone could fulfill in that passage. In fact, if I were to sum up all the messianic expectations of the Jews in the Old Testament, they saw in their Messiah one who would be human, a far greater king than any other king they've ever had, powerful in word and deed. He would have miraculous powers. He would be mighty and wise in the Holy Spirit. He would be holy. He would be free from sin. He would be the final anointed king, the true king of Israel. He would destroy God's enemies with the word of his mouth. He would deliver Jerusalem from Gentiles. He would gather faith, the faithful Jews from dis, being dispersed. And he would rule in justice and glory. These are all the expectations that they had about their Messiah. And so you can understand why it is shocking for them to hear Jesus say in verse 31, the Son of Man, another Old Testament messianic title for Jesus from Daniel 7, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Before... Jesus had not been clear about all of this, but now 
Now that they're beginning to really see who he is, you're the Christ. Now it says he begins to speak to them plainly. All right, fellas, you're ready. Here's who I am. Here's why I've come. Here's the truth about my mission and my purpose. This is what I've come to do. And it's it's hard to give you like a modern day example of how shocking this was. Like if you woke up on November 9th and the first update you read on Twitter or Facebook or whatever you get your news from, you know, last night, United States elected to the presidency of the United States, the Easter Bunny. You'd just be, what? Like, is that possible? Like, how do we... I mean, maybe we want that to be possible, but how do we, how do, we do that? Like, is, is it real? What, is, what do you mean? Like, it, you would just be, you know, I'm having a bad dream, wiping your eyes, I can't, I can't figure out. Like, you, you would be completely floored about, this is ridiculous. And that doesn't hold a candle to how shocking it was for the Jews, these Jewish men like Peter, to hear, okay, the Messiah is going to come and be rejected by the religious leaders? They're not going to follow him. They're going to reject him and, in fact, crucify him. Allow him to be executed and put him to to death on the worst form of death there was in that day. And then he'll rise. Like, they didn't have a framework for this. They had no way to assimilate this into what they already understood about being a Messiah. They they had heard from little boys growing up at the the feet of their fathers and from rabbis in their small towns about the one who would come, the Messiah who was coming, the one that they're waiting on who would come in power and make all things right. They had no framework for a Messiah who would be killed. Now there were passages in the Old Testament that we'll read one later on, Isaiah 53, that spoke about a servant who would suffer. Isaiah 53 is probably the most famous one. And there were passages like I just read that spoke about the anointed one, the Messiah. But there are no passages in the Old Testament that make a connection between those two ideas. None. You had Messiah, power, glory, might, ruling and reigning, and you had a suffering servant. There was no passage that said, that's the same person. And this is why the Jews missed it. Which is part of God's plan, as we find out later on. It had to be part of God's plan for them to be crucified and killed. So it wasn't on the the scale of possibility for a Jew. Mark has hinted at it, but only Jesus really knew and understood who he was and what he had come to do. And so Peter, being the good, loyal, faithful Jew with good intentions, decides to put Jesus in his place by rebuking him. You know, pulling Messiah. At least he's kind of nice about it. Come over here, Jesus. Let's talk about this. What are you talking about? You know what you're talking about? This is ridiculous. And then Jesus puts him in his place. Get behind me, Satan, verse 33, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Strong words by Jesus. Hard words by Jesus. Necessary words by Jesus. There can be no equivocation. There can be no misunderstanding. There can be no playing around with this. This is not a gray area issue where it's okay if you believe this. It's okay if you believe this. We're all united in love. This has to be. You have to get this, Peter. You have to know this is why I've come. And you, Peter, rebuking me, saying that this is not the way it's going to be, you, in fact, are are speaking the words of Satan. There's nothing Satan wants more than for Jesus not to go to the cross. 
So Peter, you are acting like a demon, a satanically possessed man and saying these words. So I'm going to rebuke you like you are possessed by a demon so that you and others will hear strongly, no, this is why I've come. This has to be the way. It has to happen. And Jesus says, you're, you're, you're setting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. This constant dichotomy throughout Scripture. God's way or man's way. Psalms 1 shows us the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. All through the Proverbs, you have the way of the fool, the way of the wise, the way of the slugger, the way of the industrious. In the New Testament, the way of the spirit, the way of the flesh. Like the man Jesus just healed from blindness, Peter can see enough of Jesus the Messiah, but he can't fully see everything, so he only sees to him what is unthinkable, but to Jesus what is inevitable and necessary. Peter gets the brunt of this because Peter spoke up. All 12 of them are in the same boat. None of them thought this was a good idea. This is not a good plan. And so here we see the second quality of a disciple Jesus. They have to have a faith that is personal, but they also have to have a faith in Jesus that is submissive. That is submissive. When someone begins to see Jesus as Messiah and begin to follow him as a king, they get a new agenda. No longer is their life simply their way and their thoughts, but it becomes obedience to the king, his way, his thoughts, his plans, even when it doesn't make sense. Jesus is a king. You don't come to Jesus with your agenda and say, okay, Jesus, what you got? That's your agenda. Okay, here's my agenda. Let's negotiate and see if we can find some middle ground because I want what I want, you want what you want, and we can't both agree, so let's compromise. You don't come before a king like that. You come before a king and you lay your sword down. You come before a king and you fall on your face and say, whatever you tell me to do, king, I'm doing it. You're the boss. You're the ruler. You lead, I follow. Now, Peter and the disciples, they were not entirely there yet. They would be. But Jesus is going to continue to give them more understanding and more sight, and they'll get there, just like he does in our life. Some of that more and more revelation and sight giving begins now as Jesus begins to lay out the normal life of his disciples. Verse 34, he calls the crowds himself and says with his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what is the profit of man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him Will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. Now we're going to save verse 1 of chapter 9 for next week to see the connection between this and the next story. But I want to focus on verse 34 as the basic, normal, everyday life for someone who sees Jesus as Messiah and follows Jesus as Messiah and King. And Jesus goes to the cross to die and calls us to do the same thing. Take up our cross and die. Deny self. Now some have watered this down, this idea of carrying your cross, that it's a really hard burden in life. So like you've got sick parents to take care of, you've got a really bad job, a horrible boss, your kids are unruly, well here's the cross I have to bear. And so they make it the cross bearing as something just hard to do. But that's not what the cross meant in the first century. That's not the imagery that these disciples and the original readers of the Gospel of Mark got. 
The cross is not something hard to do. The cross is death. The cross is shame. The cross is horror, pain, ridicule. The cross is, is nothing that anyone would embrace. You carry a cross because you're headed to death, not because it's hard. There was no object in the first century that invoked more horrific feelings than a cross. Like we hang them in our homes, we wear them around our necks, we get them tattooed on our skin because for us, the imagery of the cross has been redeemed. For us, it's a meaningful symbol of our faith in Jesus. We know what happened on the cross. For some, maybe the cross is a good luck charm or a wedding present from Aunt Sally that you can't return because you bought it online. But in the first century, it was an instrument of death and shame and horror. An instrument of death. So some had tried to make an analogy like, well, if you wear a cross around your neck, it's kind of like wearing a, uh, uh, an electric chair around your neck. But the electric chair to us, that's very sterile. Like, that's far away. That's not part of our everyday life. The, the cross was an instrument of death that was in the face of the people. It, it was a, a symbol not just of death, but a symbol of Roman occupation. Because they invented it. We're, we're hanging up people, not Roman citizens, but the dregs of society. We're hanging these people up because we think that they are criminals. They are rebellious. They are insurrectionists. And we're reminding you of who really is in charge. And the people would be hung up naked, in shame, stripped naked, and hung by busy roads so people would pass by and for days watch them suffer. Where wild animals like birds could pick at their skin and the sun would literally just blister them to death. The cross was not a fast way to die. The cross was an excruciating, where we get that word, excruciating, out of the cross. Painful, hard, miserable way to die. You don't die because you bleed to death. You die because you suffocate slowly over several days, if not longer. This is why when Jesus died on the cross so quickly, the Roman soldiers were shocked. He's, like, He's already dead? That doesn't ever happen. And they had to break the legs of the other two guys to kill him. So they would asphyxiate because you didn't normally die that quickly. This is what the cross meant in the minds of the first century Jews and the first century Gentiles who read this. An instrument of death, shame, horror. It was a call to die. But in this call to die, it was actually a call to live. Those four questions that follow verse 34 all began with the, the word for. They're all referring back to verse 34. This is part of the seemingly upside down rationale of God's kingdom, this paradox. In the Christian life, if you want to live, you have to die. If you choose to die, you will live. If you choose to live without dying, you will die anyway and lose your soul. If you want the world, you can have it, but you'll lose your soul. There's nothing in the world more valuable than your soul, your eternity. What in the world could you possibly see as more valuable than your soul that you would want to hang on to and lose your soul? So in this section, we see the third and fourth quality of a disciple of Jesus. Yes, your faith has to be personal. Yes, your faith has to be submissive. But you also have to have a faith in Jesus that is public and sacrificial. Public in that we are not ashamed to publicly identify with Jesus. We're baptized, as we saw last week. That's our public declaration of our faith in Him. If Jesus was a political candidate, we'd have His sign in our yard, His bumper sticker on, on our car. Now, that, I mean, we make jokes about that. Our, our, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. But, but if that's true, unless you drive like your boss is on crystal meth, but if that's true about you, 
then that's publicly identifying with Jesus. We, we are unashamed. And the shame, our embarrassment that Jesus is speaking of is not referring to these momentary failures where we, we drop the ball. We, we have an opportunity to share the love of Christ or the gospel of Christ with somebody and we, we back out. That's not what that's referring to. This is a settled disposition of one's life. The inability of, like these religious leaders, to believe in Jesus because they could not come to grips with a suffering Messiah. This is the shame, being ashamed of Jesus that it's talking about. You'd be embarrassing for the religious leaders to place their faith in this uneducated rabbi. And they couldn't do it. This is why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1, the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The, The Jews couldn't get past a crucified Messiah. The Greeks thought it was ridiculous that our supposed king was killed like a criminal. There's nothing in Greek mythology like that. That's silly. Why do y'all believe that? But for us, the cross, the Messiah, Jesus, it is life and joy, the very core of our faith. And so we unashamedly, publicly identify with the crucified Messiah so that one day when he returns in all of his glory, as the passage says, he will publicly identify with us. Yeah, those are my people. Our faith is not just public, but it's sacrificial. We die to self. We die to self-determination. Now, sometimes people die physically because of identifying with Jesus in certain parts of the world. Maybe America one day. We don't know. But we definitely die to our desires. We die to self and our own self-determination. Where we can confess that our life is not our life. That our time, our money, our jobs, our spouses, our kids, our cars, our home, our resources, our future is not ours. They belong to our King. They're His. He gave them to us by His grace to use for His glory. And so daily, many times a day, we have to die to self, crucify self, and lay down our claim to own and be sovereign over our lives. This day is your day, Jesus. This week is your week. This this college degree that I'm pursuing is your college degree. This relationship that I'm in, it's your relationship. This marriage, she's she's your spouse, Jesus. She doesn't belong to me. She belongs to you, Jesus. So I'm held accountable by you about how I treat her. And she's held accountable to you about how she treats me. These kids are your kids. They belong to you, King And every time my heart wells up in me, demanding that I take it back, that it belongs to me, that I'm sovereign over it, and I can do whatever I want to with it, the Holy Spirit of God has to come and remind me that I'm not king and I'm not sovereign, to die again, to deny self again, to take up my cross and kill myself again. Because he's the king, not me. As a follower of Jesus, this week is not your week to live any way you want to live. It belongs to him. And every moment of every day is submitted and sacrificed for Him to guide you, lead you, direct you, and use you as His people in this broken world. And when you think about this, when you think about all the implications, I hope, man, I hope you begin to feel the weight of this call. Really? Like, He can't have 95% of my life? And 5%, like an hour a day, I can hang on to and do whatever I want that hour a day? 
He can't have like 95% of my money and 5% I can spend however I want to spend. Like it really all belongs to him. And there's no possible explanation about it unless you just ignore it. Like I'll take Jesus as my savior, my forgiver, my redeemer, my hope for eternity. But all this talk about sacrifice and laying down my life, I'll pass. But you, you can't do that. Jesus is not a buffet. You get all of him or you get none of him. You take him as Messiah who gave his life for the sins of the world and calls you to do the same or you don't get him. You you can't have the parts of Jesus you like and dismiss the rest. There's this unbreakable, you'll, you'll see it through the next few chapters, this unbreakable connection between Jesus as Messiah our sacrificial king and us as his followers and the life we live as his followers will look like this or you're not following Jesus. Like every time over the next three chapters, Jesus talks about his coming death, his coming sacrifice, his coming resurrection. It is immediately followed with a section on discipleship. So this is what your life looks like. And it's always the disciples getting it wrong, which is encouraging to us because that's what our life looks like. But it's Jesus pressing them for what he wants from them and is going to create in them. In other words, this life of personal, public, sacrificial, and submissive faith in King Jesus, guys, this is the normal life of a Christian. This is, this is not the, the super spiritual life for a pastor or for a missionary to some third world country. This is the normal, everyday life of a believer in Jesus. Guys, if this doesn't characterize your Christian life, you have great reason to question the legitimacy of your salvation. Are you truly saved? Are you born again? Have you come alive in Christ? If you don't see a faith that you own, if you don't see a faith that you publicly declare, if you don't see a faith that is calling you to submit to your king and sacrifice for your king and for the good of others, if you don't see that showing up in your life, you might not have Christian faith, you might just have religion. It might be all you have. Because our churches are, are filled with religious people. The Church of America is filled with religious people who were told that coming to Christ is just an intellectual exercise. I'm a sinner, check. Jesus is a savior, he's God in the flesh, check. He died on the cross for my sins, check. He rose from the dead, check. If I believe in him, I'll have life and be eternally forgiven and saved, check. Okay, I did all that, I guess I'm a Christian. And this is never preached or proclaimed. To deny self, take every cross, and follow him. That's what it means to be a Christian. This is not supernatural like only super Christians can do this. This is normal. The, pro- the problem is in America, because we have religious liberty, because we have religious freedom, because we have prosperity, you can live a pretty good life claiming to be a Christian, and this never press on you. You never had to sacrifice anything. I go to a church that asks nothing of me, I can be a part, have this assurance of my salvation because I'm a part of this church. I don't have to sacrifice anything in everyday life and yet continue to believe I'm a Christian even though I can't look at any part of my life that I'm sacrificing for the good of others, for my king. I'm not submitting my will to his will. I'm making this is my will and I'm fitting in Jesus where I want him to fit, where it's convenient. You might be lost if that's how you're living your Christian life. Hear this. Our churches are filled with people like this. 
The Bible South is filled with people like this. In no way do I want to soften or lessen this life-consuming, life-altering call to follow Jesus that this passage gives us. It's that serious. It's that consuming. See it. Hear it by God's grace. Feel the weight of it. Do you publicly, personally confess Jesus as King? Does your life reflect a life that is submissive to Him as King? Does your life show sacrifice to Him where your life is His life in you, like tangibly? Can you look at examples of your agenda, your desires, your plans, your money, your time, how it is all sacrificed for Him on a normal, everyday basis? This is normal. This is life-giving. This is good. Feel the weight of this call. But also don't be crushed by the weight of it as though you will never experience this life. And you can never have a life characterized by this, these qualities. Like don't make the mistake of seeing this as something only for the, the super Christians and you're just going to beat yourself up and have guilt and despair because it's not where you are right now. Don't assume your Christianity... And so maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you today, and today is the day of your salvation. Today you come alive in Christ for the first time. But as you wrestle with this, you come to this assurance. Okay, I'm His, and He is mine, but my life doesn't always look like this. Take heart. It will. It, it will. Just as it will in the life of these disciples, His sanctification is progressive. He's working this out in them. He's giving them more and more sight to see. Just like the blind man, they're going to eventually get it more and more and more. So your life will look more and more like this. Part of His grace is that you're part of a church who's going to keep pressing you in this and won't let up because it's going to keep pressing us and then give us everything we need to obey it and follow it. The disciples are a mess. They have been a mess. They will continue to be a mess, but they will get it, and so will you. But also, also, don't hear this passage and only engage on the intellectual level. Like Jesus is some scientist who went into a lab and came out with a completed experiment. And we just have to look at the results of the experiment. And yes, I believe that's true. And all, all that happens, happens up here. See the love dripping from this passage. From one small word in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. It's not that Jesus was going to die, but he must die. It had to happen. Like, were there other options available? I had a lady I used to pastor who um, shared with me once how much it bothered her that Jesus prayed for a way out in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, if there's any, any way for this cup to pass, let it pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Just bothered her. You know, why do you get, why do you get all weak at the end? Look for a way out. And at the time, I didn't really have a good answer for her. I, you know, I was like, well, you know, Jesus was also human. This is humanness coming out. But, but over time, I began to reflect on it and think about it. And, it. and some of these questions you can't answer. Some of it's just pure speculation. So this might just be pure speculation. But I think it's good speculation. That part of the reason Jesus prayed that 
there's any way to let this cup pass from me is because God was silent to show us there was no other way. This was the only way. The way of the cross. Jesus must suffer. But but why? He wasn't a criminal. He did nothing wrong. Why must he die? Because he was not dying for his sins, but in the place of sinners, in the place of us. Well, then why didn't he just let us die? Why didn't he just let us pay the price for our sins? It's what we deserve. Why don't we just go to hell? It's what he did to the angels who rebelled against him uh, before we were created. He didn't save them. Why, why, why are we saved? Why does this option exist for us? Well, it's not because anything was lacking in God that he needed to fill, but it's because he wanted us. It's because he wanted us. Sinful, rebellious, broken people. He desired us. He loved us to come for us. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. For God so loved the world. How did He love the world? He sent His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Yet ultimately it is for the glory of God. So some of you piperins are thinking, wait, what about God's glory? I thought that's ultimately the aim of all things. Yeah, ultimately it is for His glory. But how does He get all that glory? Because He loves us that don't deserve to be loved. The unlovable. Motivated by love. This King who calls you to die, he calls you in love. He doesn't call you with guilt. You know, putting the guilt trip on you, we don't want to make him feel bad, so we better do what he says. He doesn't call us with fear. You better do this or else. He doesn't call us controlling us like we're robots. He doesn't overwhelm us with his power. He calls us in love to follow him publicly, sacrificially, submissively, and love. And when you do that, what happens is you discover that when you confess him as a king, you follow him as a king, you discover that this is how you were truly wired to live. It's like the deep magic of Chronicles of Narnia. Like it seems like we should be just chasing stuff, chasing fame, chasing the applause of other people, chasing significance, chasing ambition. It seems like that's how we were wired because everybody's doing it and it's our default mode. It's a constant battle not to live like that. But when you confess Jesus as Messiah and your heart is settled on him and you don't need the approval of other people because you have the approval of your king. And then you begin to give yourself away sacrificially, submitting to his will. You begin to give yourself away just unmeasuredly in love to others, to Jesus. Then you find in the deepest core of your being, this is how. 
This is what you were created for. This is what you were made for. This is how you truly are wired, created in the image of God. Deep inside, it's our spiritual DNA where we can enjoy the stuff of this world, but it doesn't own us. We, in fact, can give it away for the good of others. And when we do that, we're most alive. When we have Him, as we follow Him, we can properly enjoy and use the stuff of the world because it doesn't control us. People no longer become what determine our value and self-worth. What determines our mood. My mood this day, my mood this week is not based on how people are treating me. What people have done for me or what people haven't done for me. I am settled with my king. What he thinks about me is all I need. People can treat me however they want to treat me as long as he thinks I'm good and he thinks I'm good all the time. You know what this does? When you, when you get that, you know what this does? When that is so settled in your heart, then you give yourself away to others in unmeasured ways. It's not, well, I'm going to love them, but I don't know if they're going to love me back, so eh, just throw them you know, a little, maybe a text. Just a little text. Maybe an emoji. I don't feel like, feel like using words. And we measure our love to each other. I don't know if I really want to give myself because they're not going to reciprocate it. I send this text and they don't text me back. So I better just, right? God does not love us like that. He does not measure his love for us. He pours it out on us. We're floating in this sea of love, living in this sea of love. And yet we're out here with little tablespoons and teaspoons giving it to each other. But when you are settled in the love that your father has for us through Jesus, you're just dumping it on everybody. They give it back. Great. If they don't, who cares? Because I got more of his love coming. And we just can pass it around and give it to each other. And then, guys, then we become a revolutionary community in this culture. Then we become different from other churches in this culture. Because we're unmeasured, full of grace, just pouring out love on each other. And we become this contagious community that people have to be a part of because we're just pouring out so much love on each other. We're going to get there. Because it is what Jesus is going to produce in us. Because he loves us. Because of what Jesus has done as Messiah... We deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow him. Motivated by love. Guys, let's do this because of what he's done. Let's be this because it's who we are. It's what he's creating in us. Father, we thank you for the love that we have in Christ Jesus. The love that would send him to the cross for people like us. God, as we sing songs about Jesus, as we eat this meal and share in this meal together that remembers Jesus, God, please keep this from just being a good thought exercise 
Holy Spirit, drive this deep into our fiber so that it produces love. Love for you, love for each other. That we will pour out on this city in abundance. For your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.